You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. It's time now to have our own, our very own State of the Nation and Beyond address. My next guest is a prolific tweeter and his tweets are often... Well, they're often unintelligible to somebody like me. They go right over my head. But I can sense that they are acerbic sometimes and sometimes dripping with vitriol. He's been tweeting about the cabinet reshuffle or the cabinet appointments that were announced last night from the Republic of South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa. So let's talk to him now. His name is Russell Lamberti, and he's the founder of ETM Macro Advisors based in the Western Cape. Russell, the definition of madness is, of course, repeating the same thing and expecting a different result. And it seems to me that for various reasons, that's exactly what this cabinet represents, a rehash of what we've seen before. Uh, Hi, Lindsay. Yeah, I think you've summed it up fairly succinctly. This does not feel like anything approaching a reform cabinet, Um, uh, certainly not uh, one that would be commensurate with the the level of challenges that we face in in South Africa. So... uh, you know, I, I just, I've been outspoken about it on Twitter this morning. Um, I, you know, every, everyone's a tougher guy behind the keyboard than they are in real life. I'm not I'm not uh, always so acerbic in person, but um, I think it is worth stating things very plainly. And I think if you put yourself in an investor's shoes, in a capital allocator's shoes, in a fund manager's shoes, whether they're sitting in, you know, Amsterdam or London or uh, Johannesburg, you got to say to yourself, does this cabinet signify real intent to turn the ship around and the answer has got to be a resounding no from what i can tell these are largely this this is largely the same group of people that's been at the helm for 10 years with a few tweaks and changes you know at the margins uh, and that just says to me what you know that's a, that's a that's a big marker of failure as far as i'm concerned to be fair to Cyril Ramaphosa, and I've been saying this for a couple of weeks now, without actually delving into the issue with any academic qualities, he doesn't have any skills. There are no skills coming through. There's not a production line of, of vibrant young politicians, eager and aspirant. He's just got the same pool, and that pool is a dying and shrinking pool. It's an ever-decreasing circle. So who does he go to? He can't go to the corporate world. They don't want to be political. They don't want to be part of the system. In fact, the corporate world is probably the, the, the worst place he could look, given the recent boardroom scandals that have rocked South Africa in the last couple of years. So it's a lack of skills as much as anything else to me. I think you've hit on something there. I, I think that th- that struck me immediately as well. When you see him picking the same old, same old, you, you start to realize, gosh, the the talent pool that, that surrounds the president is, is not being renewed. It's not being reinvigorated. Um, and I think that's that's true. I, I, I would, however, push back a little and say that he, he's, he is the president of the country. He's got, he does have discretion to, to, to make bolder decisions. He, he could, for example, acknowledge that the country is in, is in a deep mess and, and even make some overtures and, and sort of concessions towards something like a government of national unity, you know, bring in some, some, some really capable uh, opposition politicians. And now maybe they would refuse the cabinet post because they, they don't want to be tainted by the ANC. But, but you know, uh, try, try and reach across the aisle a bit, try and get some competence into that cabinet, um, bring some outsiders in, um, you know, but so I think it's, it's, it's a symptom of who he's surrounded by, 
and it's a symptom of this kind of stasis and quite frankly i think complacency and you know i hate to say it but you you get the sense that south africa needs to go through a very big bump in the road before it's going to jolt these guys into any kind of sense of reality because as far as i can tell a cabinet like this just says head in the sand uh you know, no problems to see here, folks. We're just going to chug along as we were. I, I, I really don't see the change impetus here. The ANC has a, a unique opportunity in worldwide governments, of all worldwide governments. It knows it's going to have a majority, not just for this election, but for the next election and the election after that. So it can do what it likes, really. Now is the time to say, let's be completely drastic and turn previous policies on their head and be bold, even though it might hurt people in the short term and be unpopular in the short term amongst certain factions. There is an opportunity to do this because no one's going to say, right, we don't have a vote of no confidence in Parliament. You've got a majority get on with it. But it doesn't seem to me that anyone's willing to take that bold step. And it's, it saddens me. Yeah, well, you know, I think r r what Ramaphosa needs to try and do is, is play up his support with the people. And he is actually quite a popular figure. He's, he's, you know, he's been untainted largely by the corruption of the last 10 years. He's, he's regarded as a, as a, you know, competent, intelligent individual who's, who's been successful. Um, you know, and he was, he's got a lot of credibility around the brokering of, of the 1994 to 1996 settlement. So, you know, he, but, you know, and it astonishes me that he, 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 he fails to kind of capitalize on this. So for example, he had a hundred million Rand inauguration at, at, uh, in Pretoria the other day. Yeah. Um, he, that, that was a golden opportunity to cancel the inauguration say we can't possibly afford to spend that much money on that have have a have a low key swearing in in parliament uh make a big song and dance about how um how much you know how, how much he's thinking about the people of South Africa and and allocate 100 million rand to you know pit latrines in the eastern cape i mean if he'd done something like that he he would just his stature would grow amongst the people because what he needs is he needs popular legitimacy to override the forces within his party that are pushing against him, um, and and so so he you know that's what he's got to do. But clearly he he doesn't seem to have that kind of charisma and that kind of skill, um, and he's not he doesn't seem savvy to that opportunity. And and so we we have a president that's that's playing this kind of consensus, everyone get around the table game. And unfortunately, that game doesn't go anywhere, really. It just sort of gets mired in conversations and job summits and um, more conversations and convening committees to talk about starting other committees to think about perhaps, you know, having yeah. a plenary session on, you know, you know how it goes. So so um, we, we need to see bold action and we need to see it soon. And I fear with this cabinet that we're getting the first glimpse into, uh, into a fairly lame duck i mean lame duck is a strong word and it's being a little harsh but but a bit of a a lame and constrained president and that's that's 
to me, terribly concerning, given given where this this country is. Also, the other thing is he doesn't have very many savvy advisors around him. He, it, it, there aren't people saying, well, you've got this job to do, Mr. President. But on the other hand, why don't you think about this? I don't think he's got, again, it comes down to the, the skills shortage. He doesn't have the people around him to advise him. He can't do everything himself. He has to delegate. But to whom does he delegate? That's the problem. On the issue of a government of national unity, can you imagine the outcry there would be if he brought in one of the unpopular people from other parties, uh, the ANC, the ANC hierarchy would not would not uh, stand it. And the, on the hundred million, well, the hundred million for the inauguration could have been used to secure water supplies for a company like Astral Foods. When you saw the Astral Foods comment the other day, uh, accompanying their results or their trading statement, whatever it was, the reason that they're not producing at maximum capacity is because they can't get water from the municipality in which that operation was situated. It's an absolute disgrace. And as you say, a hundred million. For a president that we knew was going to be elected anyway, no, forget it. You're, you're quite right. It would have been a brilliant PR exercise, and the hundred million could have been distributed to worthy causes. Yeah, I think I think what you're touching on there. I mean, there's a there's a theme running through a lot of that, which is, and really through this whole interview, which is, is just that the i the, the well of ideas has run dry, uh, and this is this is something that's characterised the ANC for quite some time. It's it's been in an intellectual cul-de-sac for for a very long time. It, it at one point was an intellectual leader, um, and certainly through the transition period uh, in the nineties. Um, but but I think it's fair to say that since the turn of this century, um, and 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 probably since the mid two thousands, it's it's become mired in in this intellectual cul-de-sac, which is obsessed over over kind of ANC hierarchies, the jostling for positions, obsessed over old Marxist concepts, uh, obsessed over things like the National Democratic Revolution and the, and the developmental state, um, obsessed over labor laws, you know, all these sorts of things that, and, and they've just mired the party and, and there's, there just seems to be nothing fresh. And then, you know, when Ramaphosa brings in advisors, they, they, you know, I'm sorry to say, but certainly the the ones that I've come across and 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 you know know about, just seem to be very mediocre thinkers who don't particularly want to rock the boat very much. Um, so this is where we are. You know, this is not. And, and you know, in fairness, this is not just a problem with the president. Uh, you know, he he's he's probably one of the best that we could have hoped for out of out of the ANC. Um, it, it, it's 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 an organizational and a, and a deep kind of institutional problem. And it's not clear that that gets voluntarily renewed and 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 reformed, you know, and, and this, you know, it, it's, it's often been said that a, a structural problem uh, cannot be fixed uh, conventionally, structural problems tend to have to Break and and it's in the breaking of of these of these institutions and organisations and and systems that you get renewal. You, it's almost like a forced renewal, and you, and you could you can kind of um, equate that to what happened under the the apartheid regime. It it, it didn't you know it, it it didn't really voluntarily reform. It it kind of broke you know in the eighties and and it and it was left with no choice. And and I, and I think we're in a we're requiring a similar level of, of renewal in South Africa's political system. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what that looks like. And it's, and it's certainly not going to be done voluntarily. And if that's true, then it, it looks to me like we're sleepwalking towards a crisis. Now, 
crisis doesn't have to mean end of the world or fall over, you know, last one, turn out the lights. Yeah. It, it can very often be a, a very positive thing. You know, sometimes things have to die before they can grow. You know, that's, that's what happens with, with seeds and plants. And that's an old um, sort of aphoristic uh, piece of wisdom, you know, and, 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 and I think that's probably true of the ANC and the South African political system. This version, this, this iteration of our political operating software, if you like, needs to die and, and kind of be reborn into something more constructive. And that dying process can be painful. Um, and, and I guess we have to hope that if we're going to go through that, that it doesn't break us, that it just um, causes and allows us to, to, to see some sort of renewal. But it's not obvious that, that it doesn't break us. It broke Zimbabwe. It broke Venezuela. These things can go wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and, and these decision nodes now, I think, becoming incredibly important as we, as we you know, look over the next five years to a decade. This, this is the make or break decade for South Africa. The last decade was, was the start of our very, very deep decline. The next decade defines the, the ultimate trajectory. It is absolutely crucial. And so uh, it's, it's, all, it's all systems go in terms of watching for the markers of, of decline or recovery. And, and as an analyst, that's, that's very much what I'm focused on. It's often these extraordinary events that do change the system for the good. I mean, look at the United Kingdom with the Brexit debacle and the mismanagement of the economy and the mismanagement of parliament by the ruling party, the Conservative Party. Look at what happens with Brexit. It is now probably has broken the two-party system in the United Kingdom, i.e. Conservatives and Labour. Uh, we've now got the Greens getting votes in the European Parliament. We've got the Brexit Party. But what it does, whether you like the Brexit Party or the Green Party, it doesn't matter. It has engendered uh, a vibrancy into the system. And there's now a multi-party political environment in the UK. If I don't know if South Africa is ready for that, because I think there would be social unrest if there were too many bold decisions made. So there has to be a very clever juggling act indulged upon indulged in rather by Cyril Ramaphosa he's got to keep the he's got to keep the populist stance in order to keep his support but on the other hand he's got to appease people like you and the corporate world in South Africa and the international investment community by uh, doing things that are completely different so it's a tough job for him it is a tough job I'd, li I'd like to make two comments on what you've just said because I think there's a lot in there um the what, what the British are going through, I think, is fascinating. You know, for, for you know, statistically speaking, it, it's fair to say that the pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit camp is roughly split down the middle. Okay, um, uh, you know, whether whether the whether the Brexiters won fifty-two forty-eight or the Remainers won forty-eight fifty-two, that that call, call that statistically a draw. Um, what what Brexit showed us, though, was that both main parties in Parliament were not representing 50% um, of the country on a critical issue, and uh, and so that has uh, th that's what got brought to light. And so what what really got brought to light was this very big disjoint between the elites and the governed. And so I think what what the UK is going through is incredibly exciting and healthy wherever it ends up. And I yes. think, you know, if it had been 48-52, you know, we'd be talking about what, you know, what Prime Minister Cameron, what hat he was wearing to Ascot, ne you know, next weekend, mm. um, as opposed to having real conversations now at 52-48 um, about sovereignty and about the nature of the European Union and the nature of, 
of the nation and the nation state and, and how you want to interact with the world. I mean, these, these are now creating really interesting politics. And I think this realignment is very exciting. I think that that's going on across the West. Um, the two-party U.S. system is is also, uh, you know, highly unrepresentative of what's going on in the base. Um, you know, George Bush is not very different from Joe Biden. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so the, the establishment Republicans and Democrats would, would equate to the, the kind of pro-European Tories and Labour. And I think that there's, there's probably three constituencies that are evolving. We, we're getting kind of more old-style conservative nationalism. Um, we're, getting, we're getting that, that sort of liberal, uh, universalist, uh, kind of pro-EU camp. And then we're getting a socialist camp, which would be, you know, the, the sort of more socialist Labour, the Corbyn Labour, um, and the Greens and so on. So I think that's, that's probably where this, this, you know, flushes out to. I'd make one final point that there's this disjoint in South Africa too. It manifests obviously slightly differently. But um, the ANC are not really working for the people as a whole in this country. They're actually governing the country for a bureaucratic elite that's probably only a few hundred thousand strong, uh, maybe maybe a million or so strong, um, and everyone else be damned. And so it is, it is actually being run for a narrow elite. And if you had a truly populist um, agenda, I think you could make a lot of people happy in, on, on both aisles. I think you could make business happy and I think you could make the poor happy. I, I, I don't think that there would be that much civil unrest if you took some bold decisions and you actually got the economy moving again. Um, I think that you could do that while still maintaining things like social grant payments and so on because social grants make up only around – 10% of the budget, uh, perhaps perhaps between 10 and 20% of the budget if you take it in totality. Now, that's a big number, but um, there's, a, there's a lot of other fat that you can cut before you, you go down to that low level where you're really hurting the poorest of the poor. And in that sense, you could, you could actually position policy in a very populist way. So I think there's a lot more maneuverability that the ANC has in theory. I actually think the big constraint is not so much appealing to the masses it's that they have to appeal to this narrow cabal, this narrow bureaucratic elite, which is um, is the elite that's been creaming off contracts at ESCOM, and it's been getting all these big fat public sector jobs, and it's been getting you know it's been doing very well in the, you know out of tenderpreneurship, and, and and so on and so forth, and so that is I think a, a more interesting constraint to look at, and it maps onto the old constraints that the National Party had. The National Party also ran the country for a very narrow cabal. It wasn't just white people. It actually ran it for a much narrower cabal of elites. And, uh, and, and we're seeing a very similar thing with the ANC. So somehow that's got to snap. And it seems, what the lesson we're learning from, from Europe is that the only way that that seems to snap is with big electoral, um, big popular uprisings, usually at the ballot box, but not necessarily exclusively. And so what the ANC really needs and what this country really needs is a, is a very, very big electoral shakeup to, to, to jolt uh, this whole thing out of its sort of stasis. The ANC needs a huge wake-up call. And, well, it's hard to see them getting it in at the next municipal election. And, you know, possibly it's only something that we see in 2024. Um, until then, it looks like we're stuck with status quo. 
I think what you're saying is, is absolutely right from an academic point of view, from an analyst point of view. But what you, don't, what you haven't brought in is the fact that there is a downtrodden and disaffected and forgotten and lost generation that wants instant gratification. They want the cell phone so they'll shoot somebody. And that is just an analogy. It's, I don't know if you can turn the voters around with the sort of ideas that you've just put forward. It, it may be, well, maybe it can I'll be done in the background, but at the same time, uh, satisfying their immediate needs, if you see what I mean. Look, I'll tell you what's interesting, Lindsay, and you know, this is this goes into sort of deep sociological stuff, and it's not easy to pass the, the complexities here, but uh, Bill Johnson, R.W. Johnson, who's a, who's a prolific author, political economy author in South Africa, as you know, um, uh, did surveys and did focus groups with DA, ANC, and EFF supporters, I think it was late last year, trying to get insights into the upcoming election. Um, what he found was that a lot of the on-the-ground EFF support, and this is very interesting, a lot of the on-the-ground EFF support actually are pro-private property, they're pro-markets, they they actually what they just want jobs. They're unemployed and they're destitute, and they want growth and jobs. And they're actually quite happy to see things freed up. Now, what's paradoxical about that, and, and but I think the reason why it sort of makes sense is what they see in Malema is not so much socialism, is that they just see a hand grenade in the establishment that's not working for them. And in a way, that that maps just to a large degree onto a guy like Donald Trump. Um, you know, uh, people project a lot of things onto these leaders, um, and these leaders end up just being an outlet for for people's frustration. But if you if you interview a lot of people on the ground, I think they they would be happy to to see a much bigger shakeup than perhaps we give them credit for for wanting to see. Um, and I, I, so again, I think that the real constraint is that we have a very conservative elite. Um, the ANC is a conservative party, and, and the, the grooves and the furrows are now well-worn in, in their policy and their institutional makeup. They don't just like to, to, to shake this up now. It's very cozy and comfortable for these elites. So, you know, <laughs> what you're saying is not entirely untrue. And I think we, part, part of that is that we shouldn't underestimate the size of what R.W. Johnson calls this bureaucratic bourgeoisie, which is which is this large bureaucracy. So... So at the elite level, it's maybe a few hundred thousand people, but it, it extends out to about three three million people. Uh, that's a big group of people. That's a big elite to to keep satisfied, and they're they're a strong elite because they're the dominant sort of uh, ruling elite. So it's not easy just to thumb your nose at them, and that I think is where the the real challenge lies. I think I think getting people to buy into your to a more reformist free market ideology at, at the very lowest level, at, at, that, at that mass society, very poor, unemployed, destitute level, I think is not actually the challenge. Because at that level, I think the discernment of policy is so poor anyway and so, so low resolution that I think you can get away with a lot as long as you're showing results. The much bigger issue is, is the shakeup of the bureaucratic bourgeoisie because it is – deeply ensconced in, in low productivity employment, and it's riding a very, very uh, abundant gravy train. Now, this is the overemployment at ESCOM. It's the overemployment in the municipalities at the provincial level, at the national level. We've got hundreds of thousands of people employed, and then and then they've leveraged their paychecks um, to, to afford nice things. They're sending their kids to, to great schools. You don't just 
you know, take this this group out at the knees uh, without a big, big fight. Yeah. And so that is that I think is the real big blockage to to reform in SA. Sorry for going on for so long. No, not at all. My head's throbbing now. Too much politics. I mean, this is more politics than I've spoken in the last two decades, but I welcome it. But I'll give you just one example before we briefly move on to the economy. And this is a sort of a comparison between the situation I'm going to describe now and what's happening in South Africa. I was watching a CNN report on elephant conservation in Botswana yesterday, and it was quite disturbing because Botswana, as you know, has just now lifted the ban on elephant hunting. And there are all sorts yeah. of reasons they've done it. But one of the reasons was that the villagers, obviously the government has to serve the people as well as the elephants, but the people come first. And villagers' crops are being destroyed by rampaging elephants because elephants are just doing what they normally do. And yeah. so the conservationists want to work with the villagers and get an exclusion zone and build fences, etc. And the CNN reporter sat down with the chap in the village, the elder of the village, who's crops have been destroyed and obviously therefore his his lifestyle his welfare his income has been compromised and he said the chap said to him what would you do what is your solution and he just said shoot them kill them so it's a yeah. short-term thing so i don't know uh, the eff base wants private property I, I don't know where he got that from i don't know to which eff supporters or which eff base he spoke to but it's an interesting concept an interesting idea, but I just don't know across the country if the same thought process prevails. Let's talk about the economy because I have it on good authority that a member of the MPC was at a function the other night and indiscreetly said to the person sitting next to him, we are going into recession. Are we going into recession, at least a technical recession, Russell? Yeah, I think I think that's probably right. Uh, I think the first quarter was, was awful. Uh, the load shedding really put the economy on its knees in Q1, and and that's not to say that 2018 was was going great guns anyway. Um, we and and the second quarter might just flatline. You know whether it grows or doesn't grow much uh, is, is sort of a statistical neither here nor there. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think we are effectively in a recession. Um, I think we're effectively in a in a long term decline. Um, you know the the Reserve Bank determines boom and or, or expansion and contraction periods and it's done so since the uh, since 1946 so, so after the second world war um, the longest expansion period was 99 months nearly 100 months from from 1999 to 2007 yeah. um, but most expansion periods are around 50 or so months uh, 50 to 60 months and most contraction periods are probably around 20 to 40 months um, we're now currently uh, in a 65-month contraction period. Um, so that runs, if you do the, the numbers on that, it runs from around late 2013, I think it is, or, or, or perhaps early 2014. Um, so we're on a 65-month contraction period. Uh, this economy is, has gone nowhere for half a decade, and really for a decade, if we're honest. Um, because the expansion period that preceded it was was very very tepid, so um, whether we quibble over the official recession or not, I think that if we denominate our GDP in per capita terms, and then in dollar terms, and then in inflation adjusted dollar terms, in other yeah. words, what what can the average South African, what global purchasing power does the South African, the average South African have now compared to five, ten, fifteen, forty years ago? And the answer, Lindsay, is depressingly um, that we're going sideways. 
we're going sideways. We've got the same real dollar per capita uh, GDP that we had in the, in the mid-70s. Um, and what that shows you is that what happened in 94 was that a, a ruling elite and a very narrow ruling elite handed over to another very narrow ruling elite. We still remain beholden to the commodity cycle. We, we've not diversified uh, sufficiently. Uh, our Department of Trade and Industry has been run by a, 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 a unashamed communist, an unashamed Marxist for a decade. <laughs> and in this cabinet pick, uh, it's just been handed over to his, his understudy. Uh, in, in the form of Ibrahim Patel. So Rob Davies, a communist, handed over to Ibrahim Patel, another communist, for the Department of Trade and Industry. And is it any wonder that we are utterly stagnant in those, in those realms? So um, the, the economic situation is, is terribly depressing. Uh, and I mean that in, in the literal sense, it is, it is depressed. Yes. Uh, we, are, we are consuming capital. Our productive capabilities are, are being gutted you know, every year. And uh, I'll, I'll just finish this little, this little answer by, by saying this, that, that the uncertainty around property rights and land expropriation um, uh, on the one hand and, and ESCOM on the other is, is quite simply a, a death knell for, um, for investment. There, there is no way that anyone would look at South Africa right now and commit large chunks of of good quality capital to this country because we don't know if we're going to keep the lights on and we don't know what security of property tenure is going to look like. And, you know, until that is, is until there's more certainty there, I'm afraid that we are, are languishing. So when I see economists, you know, at the treasury, for example, and of course they have to do this because they sort of play a, a, a semi-propaganda role. But um, they forecast, you know, rising to two or three percent growth over the course of the next few years, and you know, it's it's just fanciful stuff, uh, and uh, there's no basis for it. In fact, we we are we are not investing. Capital investment is in a huge depression, and this is the reality we face. And and so we we again we take ever more steps towards the the crisis moment, which at this point I, I'm starting to to hope comes sooner rather than later. Russell, I'd love to talk about the US bond market and the extraordinary turnaround that we've seen since the December bond yields currently at 2017 lows, what it means for risky asset classes worldwide, but we can't because I've kept you too long. We've been on the phone for half an hour talking about politics. No wonder I'm going to have to go and have a lie down. Russell, thank you so much for your analysis. Russell Lamberti is the founder of ETM Macro Advisors. That podcast was proudly brought to you in association with sharenet.co.za.